What are you doing to make sure Black Lives Matter? Good afternoon, I'm Veronica Bezesti, and this is Culture Hub PDX on Portland Radio Project. With demonstrations on Portland streets devolving to some extent into political factions, many individuals and policymakers are acting on their own to make lasting change in their community and in their personal lives to address systemic racism. Today on the podcast, we're introducing a new interview segment, Hard Questions, with two new co-hosts you may know. Rebecca Webb, award-winning journalist and co-founder of Portland Radio Project. Welcome, Rebecca. Good to be here. And Julianne Johnson-Weiss, professor and director of music at Portland Community College, acclaimed singer, producer, and educator. And on top of all of that, she's on the board of directors here at PRP. (laughs) Glad to have you with us, Julianne. Thank you. Glad to be here. And later, we'll hear from Dr. Rosa Colquitt, chair of the Oregon Democratic Party Black Caucus. I'm going to let you two ladies take it away because this is actually a conversation you started quite a few years ago. We did in 2004 for a pilot of a race-relevant radio show that we were developing at that time. The morning has broken. We're buzzing all around. Good companies cruising all over town to get your opinion on a humanity. We're sitting on the brink of talking a sanity. We're good company. So as you can tell, it was a more lighthearted time, <laughs> at least if you were white, in 2004. <laughs> Julianne is black, and I'm not. No. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> but because we were such good friends, it was easy for us to talk about race, right, Julianne? Or at least I thought it was. Did you think it was easy? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, yes, it's easy because we had a relationship. That's the most important thing when you get to these hard subjects. It's you've got to have a a relationship that's already developed so that when we get to those places of being uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. somebody cares. And, and, and gives you a way out, or at least a way to look at it differently. So I remember a moment when we went to an athletic club in the South Waterfront, where the clientele, oh, yes. yeah, was mostly white, really, really white, except for the occasional trailblazer. And uh, when we were chatting in the locker room, you told me something I had never heard before. Well, you know what, Rebecca? There's something that uh, happened to me when I entered the club that uh, I'm sure you probably wouldn't notice because you really don't have to notice it in your life. But uh, What's that? Well, it's kind of something that African-American people do when we come into a new space, especially a space that doesn't have a lot of ethnicity. We survey. And we have to because there's a climate, there's a feel that happens when uh, people look at you. What are you surveying for? Uh, To make sure that we can present ourselves in a way that won't cause fear or cause people to back away or shy away from you. Do you think that's common that most black people go through that? Everywhere we go. We were talking in the locker room and the very next minute a little white girl reacted to Julianne. We go to restaurants and we don't want to make anybody feel ill at ease. Sometimes when you see a child in in the shopping center, they might, you know pull back from you because they haven't seen any black people and so or they stare at you much like this child over here is doing right now i had no idea before you told me that that black people were constantly surveying the scene to make sure they weren't causing anyone fear or discomfort i just couldn't believe that and i'm wondering now that white folks are a little more aware more woke you might say has that changed at all or is just too soon Um, I would say it is too soon. Um, 
Not because uh, there hasn't been an awakening of some sorts, especially after viewing uh, collectively the film on George Floyd and his murder. Um, There has been an awakening of some sort, but I do believe that there's some educating that has to happen before people really understand how deep-seated the uh, systemic racism is and in in Oregon and uh, across the United States. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about what white people should do, especially if we don't really know many or even any. Some people don't in Lily White PDX. (laughs) And I would actually love to ask you that, but I'm pretty sure that you are tired of hearing that question. (laughs) Are you? Not so much. Not so much. I, I think that those of us who have more tools in our toolbox, um, all have to kind of uh, step forward and reach out. Now, do I want to hold every white person's hand and walk (laughs) them through this process? (laughs) No, (laughs) because I also believe that we have the internet and we have lots of access to uh, finding out information. And now in light of everything, uh, we do have a lot more information on systemic racism, on how to uh, recognize it when it's happening, what our uh, profiling of our, what the police have been been doing. Um, We have a lot of access. So what I want to do is kind of guide people to the start of their process. And then, you know, if they want to touch base with me along the way, that's fine. But I, I really don't have, and I don't think blacks should be required to do the handholding along the way, because this is really uh, something that we deal with every single day of our lives. And so um, naturally, if we have a relationship and you ask me and you want information, I'm more than happy to give you the information that I have. But uh, really, I think it's important for white people to understand that now that you are woke, there's an opportunity for you now to self-educate Fair and-, and to get yourselves aware of what's happening in the world around you, which has been uh, kind of based on false premises. Mm-hmm. Well, we've learned a lot um, in, the, in the last few months already, and that people of color, for example, are doing a lot of the essential jobs during the pandemic that Black and Hispanic Americans have the highest rates of asthma, which puts them at increasingly higher risk of getting COVID. And just think of what all the wildfire smoke is doing to that risk. Mm -hmm. Um, That police brutality is systemic. That was made plain for anybody to see now that we have videos that people can take on their phones. And I'm wondering if it's possible that things are actually so bad that we could potentially see more significant change that wouldn't have been possible in a more lighthearted time. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's really uh, not a lot of room left for denial. Uh, If you are denying, you are consciously denying what's going on, um, which is a whole nother layer of understanding. Um, The needle has been moved. And I know some stark testimonies from people who I went to school with who have received Um, kind of this awakening and realized um, what I was dealing with daily while they were just going about their, you know, happy white way at school, I had to deal with all of the different prejudices and 
all of the different assumptions about who I was and why I was there and how I got there and everything as a black person. So I like to give anybody who is seeking some resources that they can go to in order to get started on their journey. One of them is uh, Project Implicit through Harvard University um, to start off with self-awareness, you know, checking yourself for what biases you may have and then go through to your family and have some of those hard conversations. And uh, you can also check out the African-American Museum of History and Culture. They have a lot of information that uh, will get you started on the journey of understanding how to identify racism and identify bias. Great. Yeah. We'll put the links to those resources in the blog post that will go along with this episode. Great. And what about people who say they don't see color? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Just go ahead. What about those people? (laughs) I mean, should we see color? (laughs) To deny that you, to say I don't see color Uh is, is, that's just, it's not true. Because uh, we evaluate everyone on what we first see, no matter who we are. Now, whether you see the color and it is a negative response or a positive response, that has to do with your experience and with your education thus far. But if you are saying that, you know, I walk in a room and it's like, oh, I don't even remember that Julianne is black. Well, I'm aside, aside from the fact that I'm almost six foot and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and black. <laughs> um, it's just it's it's not a good way to get started down this road, because really you have to see you have to recognize what you see. The idea is to understand how you see color because the color is there. How don't do you are you concerned? Are you hearing from people who are def- who become defensive talking about this though? Absolutely. I mean, it. You know, you have choices when you start going down a road, a path like this, of understanding who you are. You can either come at it as, uh, "Wow, I want to learn more," you know, and that's very open, and that gives you an opportunity to garner new information and to try to apply it to you know, your daily life. But then you have a whole nother group of people who get really upset. I just did a, uh, a Zoom with people in, in the arts across the United States. And we had some Broadway actors and performers and producers and things like that online with us. And a person, I think he was from the Midwest, when I said, um, do you know that every Black person that is in our industry as an artist uh, has to come in triply prepared. You're supposed to be prepared anyway, but we have to be triply prepared and evaluate who is evaluating us and be sure that we have the opportunity to share who we are uh, without them putting up any kind of walls. Okay? So that takes a lot of analysis that the average white person that's in acting could just walk in and audition and try to be better than the last guy, you know? So we have those conversations, and I think part of it is that we realize that it's important that you understand who you are 
and what is happening to you as a person of color. And then as a white person to know what you are inflicting on another person based on the privilege that you have. So I do, yeah, people do get defensive. Of course they do. It's a hard conversation. So I'd like to start off, I like to start off with them taking uh, just a quick um, bias test, you know, just to see what their biases may be. And that's usually fun, lighthearted. People just kind of go through the test and then we share some of the information. But then the next step goes to the next layer, which is now with those biases, I want you to think about the different situations that you find yourself in daily with people of color. And now that you know that you have that bias, what do you do? So there's, yeah, there's a lot. Mm -hmm. We want to get Dr. Colquitt in this conversation, but I'm really curious about that little bias test. Um, So maybe we can get her in the conversation and Mm -hmm. uh, you'll give us a, a little summary of that. Sure. Good idea. Everybody likes a quiz, right? And when we come back, we'll hear from the Black Caucus Chair for the Oregon Democratic Party, Dr. Rosa Colquitt, who just led the Oregon delegation to the Democratic Convention and made history after a quick break. Culture Hub PDX is supported by Beneficial State Bank, taking steps with hearts, minds, wallets, votes, and voices to create a more equitable world. BeneficialStateBank.com. Americans standing on native land, we proudly represent Oregon. The dual viruses, COVID-19, and racism laid bare unequal health care access and deaths in communities of color. The Democrats are working to bridge divides and make sure everyone has equal access to low or no cost quality care. Today, Oregon cast 16 votes for Bernie Sanders. And with Senators Wyden and Merkley's support, cast 57 votes for Joe Biden. In an unusual move, Oregon Senators Ron Wyden and Jeff Merkley stepped aside this year to allow two black Democratic leaders to speak for the Oregon delegation to the Democratic National Convention. Welcome back to Culture Hub PDX. I'm Veronica Bezesti here with Rebecca Webb and Julianne Johnson and a special guest. Yes, the senators said, and I quote, we must listen more to those who are among the most impacted by racism and longstanding health disparities. We must listen more to black Americans. And with that, Wyden and Merkley stepped aside and put two black Oregon Democrats in the spotlight, the national spotlight, Travis Nelson, a registered nurse and Democratic National Committee member, and our next guest, Dr. Rosa Colquitt. Dr. Colquitt, uh, previously an official with the Oregon Health Science University and now chair of the Oregon Democratic Party Black Caucus, joins us now. Welcome, Dr. Colquitt. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. Was that expected um, to have the senators just step aside? I mean, how did it make you feel? It was uh, very much unexpected when I got a phone call. Uh, from some of the staff of both of those uh, senatorial offices. And I had the phone to my ear, and I pushed it a little bit closer. You would like for me to do what? <laughs> but <laughs> indeed, it was uh, it was quite a moment that I, uh, I doubt that I'll be forgetting it anytime soon. But 
it felt uh if i were if I were trying to grab a word to describe how I felt uh the first thing that comes to my mind is uh grateful that's i I really felt a profound sense of gratefulness that uh I would be along with one other black uh leader in our community that I would be standing in their place. And uh, I felt grateful at that moment, and that uh, feeling, those emotions only increased once I began to uh, fall into the role of what I would be doing as a delegation chair. And it all, it really hit home for me uh, the very night or the very Sunday that we recorded what's called the National Roll Call Vote uh, when Oregon uh announces the uh, votes for the candidate that we selected in the primary. And so I had to announce uh, Oregon's 57 votes for uh, Vice President Biden. And in that taping, we taped it, and it was later put on air the actual night of the convention. But it was really a moment when I stood in front of the camera to make that announcement, and standing behind me were these two uh, U.S. Uh, senators, these two white men that were standing behind us uh, with small, they had small posters, convention posters to hold up, and they were standing there and very proud, as I spoke later with Ron White, very proud to do so, but it was a very a moment of humility for me as well as gratefulness that they were willing to uh, step back so that someone else could step forward. And one of the things I think about quite often, even today, I thought about it earlier today when I was looking at a 9-11 remembrance tape, is uh, that's not something that most will do. Even when I looked at the roll call vote, there were a lot of senators and governors and representatives, but the leaders of my state of Oregon, our state of Oregon, decided they would step back and hear a black voice. That was fantastic. Um, just, it, it was historic. And as was, of course, the nomination of Senator Kamala Harris for vice president. Did you think you would see that day? <laughs> I wish you could see my face, ladies. <laughs> I am, I am just smiling. I am, um, I, I hope you can feel me, just feel mm -hmm. what I would have to describe to you as sheer joy and excitement. And I, I never thought I would see it happen necessarily, but then I always knew there would be that possibility uh, uh, with a woman as tremendous as Kamala Harris. I knew there there is certainly the potential, but I think it's so significant, her nomination on as VP on the ticket is so significant in the fact that it's been a very, very long time coming. When I think about and I go all the way back to Shirley Chisholm's yes. 1972, yes, yes. <laughs> that was a historic presidential bid, not just as the first woman, but the uh, first black woman. And although she didn't make it onto the ticket, uh, I've heard uh, Senator Harris speak often, and she uh, she consistently reflects on the her inspiration. That one of her inspirations is Representative Shirley Chisholm, and so it is it is immensely significant that today she's on the campaign trail. 
Indeed. Now, the health disparities that the senators referred to in deferring to you and Mr. Nelson were already known, but never as dramatically illustrated until COVID. And with the the pandemic, it became clear that our communities of color are unduly bearing the consequences of exposure. And now, as I mentioned, with all the wildfire smoke, Black folks are going to get hit again because of their higher than average asthma rate. What remedies is the Black Caucus calling? for to correct those disparities? Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for that, that question. It is, uh, I know we're going to talk about several things today, but above all else, I think this may be more relevant than anything else that we may have an opportunity to explore. And that's because it's about Black lives, it's about our families, our friends, and it's about all of the people that we love. Uh, in answering that question for you, I think it's important that we remain uh, mindful of history. The fact that Oregon was founded as a state for white persons only, and that being white remains an advantage in a racist healthcare system. So uh, the Black Caucus has actually come together on many occasions to think about and to discuss and to research and to study how do we address this problem. One of the things that we've talked about consistently is that uh, as a as a longer-term goal, we're asking for training and support for more Black doctors and researchers and scientists. And we believe that their presence in the healthcare system will engender a greater level of trust in receiving health care uh, because there are so many underlying medical problems uh, among many members of our black community. And we especially think that uh, having more black physicians is important uh, during a period of COVID-19 because we're now going into clinical trials as we began to think about uh, what vaccine uh, we're going to be developing and how that that vaccine will be administered in communities, particularly in a community such as a black community when we know that there are so many disproportionate cases and that we've already experienced so many disproportionate deaths. Uh, In terms of more specific recommendations, we are thinking that uh, both at the local, the state, and the national healthcare level that we need to develop, implement racial equity COVID-19 response plans. And we can do that by collecting and disaggregating data to, to track uh, the disparities that are occur- occurring. Also, uh, tracking information like testing, hospitalization, death, and recovery rates. And we're also uh, very concerned that this community is prioritized We address barriers to testing and care, and very importantly, that we employ culturally informed contact tracing approaches. And we think we can begin to just, at a very beginning stage of attacking this problem of the the disproportionate cases and deaths. Mm -hmm. Well, we've recently passed the 100-day mark for some of the street demonstrations that are going on, and uh, it's getting very contentious and increasingly taking on divisive political overtones. Uh, Are you concerned that the message uh, that Black Lives Matter and the demand for equal treatment under the law is getting lost or, or overshadowed? 
Very much so. Very much so, Julianne. Uh, some are concerned that the that the message is getting hijacked, and uh, so we've talked about. Well, if we think the message is getting hijacked, then exactly what it is we need to do to try and sort of turn that situation around a bit. And some of the things we've talked about uh, is that we need to. It's been suggested that the black community may need greater clarity on it on identifying exactly who the black leaders are for the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, both individuals and organizations, exactly what goals we seek to accomplish, and if there's a time frame for the concerns. And when I say a time frame, I, we're, we as a, a black caucus are not advocating for an end date because we understand that the fight for social and racial justice never ends, but we're looking at ways for uh, how to curtail the the number of protests and certainly the violence that's that's in the protests, both here in Oregon and nationally. Well, I think also one of the major concerns in that is uh, what we can do to return the focus to systemic police brutality yes. to ensure the momentum is not lost toward racial equality. And I think that's what you're you're speaking to at this point. Yes, very much so. Rosa, I want to ask you about vote by mail. Of course, we've been doing it in Oregon since the 1980s quite successfully, and other states have followed suit. Donald Trump, however, has been pushing this false narrative that mail-in voting leads to election fraud, which we know is not true. Now, because of the doubt that he is sowing, are you concerned? Concerned that whatever the outcome, the November election may not be considered legitimate? <laughs> Again, thank you for that question. It's a huge concern among the black community because uh, in every organization that I work with uh, here in Oregon and nationally, the concern is we're pushing, pushing, pushing the get out the vote, that everybody needs to vote. You need to register your, every member of your family, all of your friends, all of your associates, your acquaintances, the in-laws, the outlaws. Let's just register everybody and make sure everybody votes. But at the same time, when they're hearing what we believe to be uh, a false narrative from the person occupying the Oval Office now, that there may be some discouragement. People may d be discouraged when they're saying, is it really going to matter? And we're saying, absolutely, it's going to matter. And that uh, it, it will be ferreted out. And we don't believe that, that uh, vote by mail, of course, it's not. It's worked here in Oregon forever. And we believe in the validity of it. And we will continue pushing the vote. You've said the Democratic Party, I believe you're talking about the National Democratic Party, but you can correct me, has work to do to truly reflect the concerns of people of color. Now, especially Black Oregonians who make up only about 3% of the population, according to the census, what are the obstacles to true inclusion of Black voices and what needs to change? One of the things here, uh, starting here in Oregon, I, I mentioned early uh, that it it was created as a, a white-only state. And I think that's been one of the problems with even increasing the population of, of Black Oregonians. In fact, uh, I think it's uh, the census is saying that we, we, in fact, are getting smaller. But one of the things that needs to, to happen in order to hear our voices, 
we can start even at the Democratic Party itself. It uh, what how it operates is that it has something called a state central committee, and what this really is is it's a governing body that uh, writes the rules that we live under and the bylaws and the resolutions. And there's a very homogenous group. And so one of the things that needs to happen is rather than voting people into the, the positions, the, the governing positions, we need to, to uh, live up to the example of a Ron White and a Jeff Merkley when there is an occasion to bring people in through appointment rather than constantly voting people in because sometimes there's not enough people, a mass of people to vote in black voices to bring them to the table so that they can be heard. And by all means, we need to elect more black candidates. And one of the things that the caucus has experienced in seeking people to actually run and supporting them are things like, uh, I work full time. Uh, I'm not able to, uh, not, ha- not be able to work full time. I'm, I don't have the community connections or the business connections to raise the money to run for office. They're all kind of those kinds of things. And so we're constantly working on overcoming those barriers so that we can get more candidates in the office so that their voices, people who have the lived experience of what's happening in the community, so that those voices can be heard. And we can't, and when we can't get them voted in, we need to have methods of bringing them into the table that don't necessarily require that they be voted. Uh, by a population that's about uh, 97% greater than what they are. That's a beautiful idea because I know as a young person, we had opportunities to learn about our system and our our legal system, Mm -hmm. our judicial system, our, you know, uh, ways of learning about voting. And um, now that I'm in that age group where, you know, we need to be teaching and, and getting them access to understanding how to go through that process. I, it brings me joy to hear that that's uh, some of the things that you're focusing on. Uh, thank you, Dr. Colquitt. Uh, it's, you, you're awesome. It's just been a pleasure to talk to you oh, and to thank you. connect with you. And one other thing I wanted to add, not only do we work with candidates, but one of the major, major priorities of our Black Caucus is helping every citizen understand the uh, the political process and how they fit in it and where what they need to do to be a part of that system, even if they don't want to be uh, come in and function as a volunteer or an officer or whatever in the Democratic Party. We want to make sure that they understand the political process, that regardless of the size of our population, that we have an integral part in this political process. And so we do a lot of workshops and we do a black leadership conference and we start with high school students. And interestingly, in 2019, we had a conference, we had middle school students and they were Mm -hmm. telling me they were very excited about getting their driver's license so they can get registered to vote. And it really lifted our spirits to know that we can go at a group or people that young, (laughs) that we're getting them interested in the political process that has so much impact on their education, their health care, all of the things that happen in the judicial system. And so it's exciting stuff, ladies, <laughs> really exciting. <laughs> yes, you know, it is. Also, as, as a black woman, I have one more question for you. Sure. 
as a black woman in uh, this climate here in Oregon, do you believe that we will see the change that needs to happen in our lifetime? So, you know what? You've just asked the question of the century. <laughs> You've just asked that question. And I, and I will tell you that I think about it consistently. Uh, when I think about uh, the disparities that we have, and the, this, this, I call it a dual virus, Julianne, the, the dual virus of COVID-19 and, and racism, yes. you know, yes. having these two things interfacing and mm -hmm. uh, what it's caused, this, this uh, phenomenal Black Lives Matter movement. But I, I really believe that at the bottom of all of it is that we have an economic disparity that I... I describe it as uh, astronomical. When it takes the income of 10 black families to equal the income of one median income white family. When you think about a wealth gap that is that astronomical, that is the underpinning of all the other problems, whether they're educational or healthcare or policing, whatever the case, housing, everything what undergirds that is the fact that there is this huge economic disparity. So I think one of the things we're going to have to do is look at legislative measures that truly began to close the this economic disparity so that we can really get at problems like housing, home ownership, and stopping the redlining and all of these things. And so do I believe that in my lifetime that we could make this change? If we want to make this change, we can, can institute the appropriate legislative measures to begin to close these, uh, these economic gaps. But as long as they are so wide and there's so much disparity, people are not as hopeful as we would like to be. And I do choose to be hopeful. I do choose to believe that we can make this change. Oh, wow. I carry that banner of hope with you, too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. You're Fulford. very welcome. It's such a pleasure to be with two wonderful people like you. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Julianne Weiss and Rebecca Webb. Yes. It's our pleasure. We know you'll be back with more hard questions in the future or more Culture Hub episodes. We're looking forward to that link for that quiz. Thanks to everyone who joined us today for Culture Hub PDX. Culture Hub PDX is supported by Beneficial State Bank, building prosperity in communities through beneficial banking services. For more, visit beneficialstatebank.com. Rebecca Webb and Asha Wagner developed the podcast. Gordon Graham is our editor. I'm your host, Veronica Bezesti. We'll see you next time on Culture Hub PDX. Culture Hub PDX.